Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Formula One podcast, Final Corner. My name is Maeve. I'm one of your hosts for this podcast, and I have with me my co-host, Rainier. We just finished watching the Australian GP, and while this wasn't quite as action-packed as the Saudi GP, we do have a number of items to talk about. We're going to start with an overview of the lead-up up to the race, a qualifying recap, an analysis of the race itself, an update on our F1 fantasy teams, and then we're going to preview everything you need to know for the next race. Thanks for joining us, and let's kick off today's episode. Before we get into the race itself, I think we should cover some things that occurred prior to race weekend. A number of teams made changes to their cars heading into Australia. Yeah, we should definitely talk about that. So first up is Alpine and Alonso. For those who don't remember, he had to retire from the race in Saudi Arabia due to a water pump failure. And it turns out that the location of that pump meant that a sealed part of the power unit would have needed to be broken in order to access the pump. So the team had to just completely replace the engine for the Australian GP. That's three power units in three races for Alonso. Yeah, from a reliability standpoint, it's definitely not great. And on top of that, with each um, each driver is only allowed three engines for the season. So he's basically at the point where if he t- accepts a new in- engine, he's going to get a grid place penalty handed out. Yeah, it's definitely not ideal since he's going to need an engine replacement at some point later this season. That's pretty much a certainty. Are there other car changes that took place this race? Yeah, so actually the majority of the teams came to the race with some sort of minor upgrade or update to the car. Ferrari was using a new diffuser, and Red Bull had a new front wing end plate. McLaren revised the winglets on the rear corner of their car, and then Aston Martin brought a new rear wing, and Haas also had an upgraded diffuser. I thought Mercedes were planning on making some changes, especially given Hamilton's kind of you know 10th place finish in the previous weekend. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mercedes has obviously been struggling. Hamilton didn't even know the 10th place gave him points for the world championship. A little surprising given how long he's been racing in F1, but we'll let it slide. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And there was a bunch of talk before the race that that Mercedes was supposed to come in with this new rear wing and it was going to help reduce the drag and combat some of their porpoising issues. But once it got to Friday and free practice, they had the same exact rear wing. And so everyone realized that the new rear wing probably wasn't going to take place in Australia and the updates are probably going to have to come later on in the season. And when I heard this news, I did not think the weekend was going to go well for Mercedes at all. Yeah, ultimately it ended up Pretty okay. I mean, they, they looked to have better relative pace. It wasn't quite where they wanted to be, but they, they wrapped it up with a solid 3-4 after some of the luck factors played to their benefit there. Let's chat about some of the track changes that also took place ahead of the race. Sure. So as part of the update, Albert Park made seven changes to the corners in total, with two completely removed. The They winded a number of turns, which essentially allows more racing lines and therefore more over, overtaking opportunities. So broadly, more exciting races. Uh, the widenings took place on turns 1, 3, 6, 11, and 13, which is definitely a number of changes. But the biggest alteration took place on turns 9 and 10, where they completely removed the chicane ultimately creating the longest straight on the track at 1.3 kilometers. This would have allowed for a fourth DRS zone, the most in any F1 track, but the FIA ended up killing the DRS zone before the start of the third practice because of safety concerns. 
Yeah, when I first heard four DRS zones, I was honestly shocked. Um, and I'm also a little surprised to see Verstappen and Lewis disagree about this. Verstappen felt that the Saudi DRS zones were much more risky, while Lewis mentioned his car was porpoising so much that he was having understeer despite it being a straight. Yeah, I'm sure the FIA did this with good reason, but I always love watching a race with an extra DRS zone. I, I think this would have actually set a new record for four total DRS zones. Um, so that would have been exciting to see, so bummer that it didn't work out that way. Moving on to free practice and qualifying, I would say there were some major highs and lows throughout the weekend. Yeah, I feel like that was really the theme for the weekend. More lows than highs, I think. Should we start with the highs? Yeah, I think I can quickly recap them here since, sadly, there there definitely were more lows. Uh, the highs for me was, obviously, Charles Leclerc setting the fastest lap, earning himself pole position, which is actually, uh, surprisingly enough, the first Ferrari pole in Albert Park in 15 years. Can you believe that? The last one was Kimi back in 2007. That, yeah, that's honestly shocking. Um, I think the other high for me was that both McLarens made it into the top eight in qualifying. Yeah, it was good to see Daniel be able to make it into Q3 and actually start in a decent position, especially given this is, you know, a home race for him. Yeah, totally agree. And seeing the McLarens in P4 and P8 made me think McLaren is on the up. Yeah, I have a, I have some thoughts on that, but we should uh, we should save that for when we get to the to the racing portion. Uh, I actually do think the biggest low of the weekend was kind of all the issues that Aston Martin faced. Seb was finally back after testing positive for COVID during the first two races of the season, and things did not go well for him, just to say the least. Uh, the bad luck started during FP1 when his car ran into an engine issue and he had to stop the engine, or he had to stop and take care of the engine when it began smoking. We actually saw Fireman Seb back in action when he grabbed the fire extinguisher, helped the marshals extinguish his car, but unfortunately he was not able to attend FP1 or FP2 due to the issue, which is certainly not ideal given how little time he spent in the car because he was out, as you know, for the first two races with COVID. Once the session had ended, Seb, Seb actually hopped on one of the marshals' scooters and rode it back to, to down the track to the pits. Yeah, if any listeners have not seen the pictures or videos from this, do yourself a favor and look this up right now. It's honestly so wholesome, and obviously all of the fans at the track absolutely loved it. Unfortunately, the FIA did not love it as much as we did. Uh, they actually fined Seb 5K euros because he entered the circuit where he is not allowed. Yeah, you really hate to see that. Kind of worth the 5K, though. <laughs> uh, as if all of this isn't bad enough, this is... Just the tip of the iceberg for Aston Martin. During FP3, Seb lost the rear of his car, exiting the fast left sequence, fast left right sequence on turn 10, causing him to run into the gravel and then eventually crash into the wall. And then to top it off, Stroll lost control of his car at turn 11, causing him to run through the gravel and into the wall with five minutes, with just five minutes remaining in FP3. Yeah, both cars crashing in FP3 is not good. The mechanics had major work to do in a very short time between FP3 and qualifying to get the cars repaired so the drivers could get back on track and actually set a lap for qualifying. Late into Q1, Seb's car was still in the garage, and it was not looking like he was going to be able to get it back out. But then a red flag bought, bought him enough time so that he was able to get back on the track and qualify in P18. Yeah, I will say the unfortunate part is that the red flag was actually from a collision with his teammate, Lance Stroll, who had a very odd-looking crash with Latifi around turn six during qualifying. You hate to see the Canadian-Canadian crash there. 
Yeah, and you really hate to see it for Latifi to have another crash with Williams. I mean, the poor guy's crashed, like, every race now this season, hasn't he? Um, And the team definitely cannot afford, like, the amount of damage and repairs that they've had to do. Yeah, it's even more of a bummer because this this one wasn't his fault. Uh, As you said, the crash was just super weird. Latifi had just pulled off the racing line to let Stroll pass before he accelerated his Williams and went past to to repass Stroll. But Stroll apparently didn't see him and moved over, hitting the Williams and causing major damage to Latifi's car. Yeah, and Stroll actually himself had to stop. There was some damage to his car, and he never set a time in Q1 since he was... um, since he was late onto the track due to repairs from the previous crash in FP3. Exactly. And on top of that, the stewards gave Stroll a three-place grid drop for Sunday's race, not that it ended up mattering, as well as two as two penalty points after judging him to be predominantly to blame for the collision because of his lack of situational awareness and Latif- of Latifi's passing maneuver. A little shocking that he missed that one. Yeah. And I really hate to keep dragging this out, but one more thing for Aston Martin happened in qualifying that wasn't great so after the crash uh the cars who really needed one last lap in q1 were lining up in the pit lane to get out for that one final lap um and they really only had time for the hot lap for the out lap and then the hot lap there was not much time uh left in q1 and seb hadn't been out on the track yet obviously he really needed to set set a time And he was able to get that lap in, but unfortunately was charged by the FIA for speeding in the pit pit lane and was charged a fine of another 600 euros. Ultimately, I think he'll he'll be happy to pay that fine if it it meant the difference between getting the hot hot lap and not. But it it was just sad seeing Seb have all these issues. I want to go back to, to one thing you said before about the mechanics having to put some major work in. These guys are... Truly the unsung heroes of the team. Super impressive. They were able to fix all, all these car issues between FP3 and Q1. And it, I mean, it was so bad that both uh, Seb and Lance actually apologized to the mechanics and thanked them for all their hard work on Saturday. So shout yeah. out to the team for pulling that together. Yeah, I completely agree. Echo that shout out. And I'm glad to see that the drivers acknowledge that the work the mechanics put in. Should we move on to the other lowlights of qualifying? Yeah, I think one bummer that I wasn't expecting was for Botas. Um, In general, the Alfa Romeo was pretty underwhelming this weekend. Botas did not make it into Q3 and ended up qualifying in P12. And sadly, this ended his streak of 103 consecutive Q3 appearances. Yeah, you got to give credit where credit is due. That's an impressive record. Really just shows his ability to be consistent. Yeah, I didn't realize this, but apparently he holds the record for the most number most number of Q3 appearances in the modern era. Um, and he was actually just short of Prost's record, who has 109 consecutive appearances in Q3. Who holds the overall record? Is that Senna? Yeah, Senna holds the overall record with 137 consecutive appearances in Q3. Got it. Damn. I think uh, I think Botas mentioned in the press conference that they actually switched the car to a smaller rear wing between FP3 and qualifying in response to to the decision to remove the DRS zone, which might just be the reason that he was slightly off the the changes there at the end. Should we uh, should we move on to some of the other lowlights? 
Yeah, I think another big misfortune during qualifying happened to Alonso. So he was in fifth in Q1 and in Q2, and then he was on an absolute flying lap at the end of Q3. I mean, he was putting in sector times that could have seemingly put him in pole position, like top three at the very least, but... I mean, he was looking amazing. Yeah. His, I, I looked at those sector times. He was, you know, super close to Leclerc sector one, and his sector two time was was purple, meaning it was faster than both Leclerc and Verstappen. Truly shocking. Yeah, and unfortunately, after sector two is where things all went wrong. He was barreling down turn 11, and then he suddenly spun into the barrier, which ended his hopes of ever finishing that lap. Yeah, he later on said that it was mechanical issues. They lost the hydraulics in the car, which impacted the gear change and, and also the power steering. He also said that he thinks he could have fought for pole position, which is incredibly impressive uh, because we really haven't seen Alpine or you know former Renault in the top in the last few seasons. Uh, yeah, it's really the lap that never was completed. We'll never know what it could have been. Um, definitely a bummer for him, but... This crash also caused another low light during qualifying. So Alonso's crash happened just as Sainz was finishing his flying lap, which caused him to have to abort his lap because of the yellow flags that came out just as he was about to finish. Yeah, this was an absolute terrible luck for Sainz. He ended up in P9, which is a bummer because everyone knows that he could have easily been in the top four there. Yeah, um, and sadly, this is not where the bad luck for the race weekend ends for signs. Uh, and I think this might be a good place to transition into our Sunday race day recap. Let's do it. Okay, so beginning with signs, he started the race in P9 and almost immediately slipped down to P14. He had a pretty slow start on his hard tires and then ran into the grass at turn nine and beached his Ferrari in the gravel kind of immediately on that (laughs) first opening of the race. Yeah, it was tough to watch. Yeah, and, you know, after hearing him talk about it, it sounds like it was a really combination of driver error, but also kind of like a car and team issue. So I didn't realize this, but apparently there were some issues with the steering wheel for his car prior to the race. So they were literally changing the wheel of his car one minute before he had to leave for the formation lap, which just meant it was not well positioned with some of the switches and also that he had to start um, with some of the anti-stall. And so when he was starting with the anti-stall, it really set him on the back foot going off of the ra- off of the race. That's why he kind of slipped down kind of quickly. He was in a really big rush to overtake cars because he knew he wasn't well positioned. And then he admitted that he just made some mistakes with the hard tires where the hard tires were not warmed up enough. They weren't ready to be pushed and he just did it a bit too early. Yeah, a bit of a bummer all around for, for signs there. But contrary to that, was Charles Leclerc, who was basically untouchable that race. I mean, the only time Verstappen was even close was during the safety car restarts, and, and I mean, yeah. Charles had a grand slam. I it mean, was amazing. Max was, like, not close at all. It was, it was, I was shocked by the difference there. Yeah, yeah, and he kept, I mean, Charles kept putting on the disc, diff, ugh, the distance. And for those of you who don't know what a, what a grand slam is in F1, it's where you get pole position, fastest lap, and win the race by leading every single lap. It just, it looked so easy for Leclerc out there. Yeah. And I think my favorite part was 10 laps uh, from the end of the race. Charles is on the radio, like 
do we need to do fastest lap? Do we need to do fastest lap? Like, I just felt like he was bored out there and wanted something to challenge himself. Yeah, it's amazing when you ask whether or not you should go for fastest lap and your race engineer responds by saying you already have it. Yeah. I'm sure it's got to feel good for Charles. Yeah, I think the Red Bulls were clearly second best out there. You had Perez, who ended up finishing in P2 in the race. And then just as I thought the race was getting boring, uh, Max Verstappen had to pull over and retire from the race. Yeah, I mean, this one this one hurt me. Once again, we saw a Red Bull retire due to reliability issues. This is the third car that they've had to retire in, in three races. It's, it's tough to watch. Yeah, um, and it's sad because this is becoming a trend. And I think this actually risks Red Bull putting themselves in such a big points deficit that you know, they're no longer going to be fighting for the championship. Yeah, I think even after the race, they didn't know exactly what the issue was be, would be. It looks like now that they've now they've been able to confirm that it actually was a fuel issue. So so at least not a power unit issue. But, you know, it's 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 tough to see the reliability issues that that Rebels facing. Yeah, I think I think the best part was uh, Horner made a comment after the race saying, I'd rather be in a fast car that has reliability issues than in a slow car with no reliability issues. So he continues to be confident. Um, How about a car, a fast car with no reliability issues? Yeah, I mean, that that might actually be even better. Seems, um, for, seems like Ferrari's figured that one out. Yeah, I'm sure Max Verstappen is not happy either. He wants to be fighting for the championship. So we'll see if they can get it together. Yeah, absolutely. So this was interesting during the race. I'm heard you. I'm sure you heard it, but at the end of the race, Lewis made a comment. You guys put me in a difficult position, and I don't know if you had the same reaction. But when I was watching it, I was expecting this to be about Russell and and the fact that you know Lewis ended up finishing the race behind Russell. Oh yeah, that's that's what I thought it was about actually. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I mean this is. I remember thinking at the time that this was unfair judgment on Lewis's part because there was really no way for the team to have known that the safety car would come out shortly after that. But, you know, Lewis gave an interview at the end of the race, and according to him, it was actually because there was an issue with the car. He couldn't fight for third because his engine was overheating, so he had to back off. And so that's why he was saying, you guys put me in a difficult position. It had nothing to do with, you know, what happened with Russell there. Yeah, well, I'm glad he wasn't making a dig at at Russell and the team in that sense. And... I mean, in his post-race interview, he seemed to be, to indicate he was happy with the result, given how far Mercedes are still off the pace. Although, I think they are looking a lot closer to the pace uh, coming off of this race. There was that hunt between Checo and George Russell at some point. And as you said, Russell finished P3, which was his first podium with Mercedes. And who could forget his first podium in general when he took P2 at Spa in his Williams? Yeah, I think uh, Lewis may have forgotten Um, He posted on Instagram that he was proud to see Russell's first podium, which, to be fair, this was his first podium where there was actual overtaking occurring during the race. Anyways, Mercedes finished P3 and P4, and it just goes to show that it's impossible to count out the eight-time world champions. As part of this weekend, and and given the consistency they've displayed, they're second in the Constructors' Championship and took home more Constructors' points than any other team this weekend, which which is shocking given how far their car is off the pace. Transitioning to a team that's typically at the back of the grid, Williams managed to eke out a single point in Melbourne. Yeah, and it only took Albin three races to do what it took Russell three years, although obviously not a not a fair comparison there. It was amazing, though, how they did it. He did a shocking 57 laps on a single set of hards. Um, and, I mean, I, I was reading about it a little bit afterwards because I, I just found that 
incredible. So he had this strategy of taking care of his tires early on, which makes sense. And he was starting last on the grid, so he could afford to do so. And then they essentially kept him out there, didn't pit him until lap 57. And what's super impressive is that Pirelli said the hard compound would do only 40 laps and, and ultimately a quick pit at the end there got him in just in the points. So congratulations to Albon. Yeah, I think even uh, Crofty and Martin uh, Brundle were a little uh, a little hesitant about that strategy. They were shocked the tires la- lasted that long. But Williams said that there was something about the C2 compound, which was this weekend's hard, hard tires, that worked really well with their car. So they're going to continue looking into that. Yeah, I, I think they were, you know, Alvin was competing with some of the top teams at, on lap times, and, and that was after he did so many laps on, on those hard tires. So if they can figure it out, it'd be great to see them up there battling for points more consistently. Speaking of backmarkers fighting for, for points, after two stellar openings for Haas, I was I was a little disappointed to see them not in the points at all this this weekend. I was I was excited about them, you know, continuous, continuously fighting for the best of the rest there. And it really, I mean, their trouble started in qualifying when they finished 15th and 17th, just not a great performance overall. Is this, do you think this is the writing on the wall after, after a short-lived position in the limelight? Uh, I don't know. I was also kind of hoping they'd be fighting for best of the rest. It, it definitely wasn't great, but it seemed like the team uh, might be under some duress. Gunther admitted going into this weekend that they didn't have a backup chassis. So maybe some of the drivers, uh, Maybe Mick and K-Mag were just being cautious about the limits. They didn't want to ruin another chassis. Chash- I hope that's that's what it is, but there's still some concern around Haas' strategy, not not having a backup chassis to go into this weekend. So obviously a lot of crashes, but but still disappointing to see them on the back foot there. At the opposite end of the spectrum was McLaren, and wow, what a turnaround this race was. This was the first time that the cars cracked Q3 in this season, which is shocking for a team that was, you know, one of the one of the ones fighting for best of the rest last season. And somehow they managed to get not one, but both cars through in Q3. Yeah, I mean, I was honestly very happy to see this, uh, especially because this was Daniel Ricardo's home race. I just wanted him to do well. But unfortunately, Norris seemed to think that this was more track than it was car. So given that there weren't as many slow corners uh, at this at this track really played into their car design. Yeah, and, and given that, it's, I don't know, it's still odd to me that there haven't been any major design changes to the car. It's clearly, you know, a step behind. Uh, it just makes you you wonder if there's some some marginal learnings going on in McLaren, um, given just everything that they that they missed at the Bahrain test in the beginning. Yeah, I mean we'll have to see how it com- how it goes for them this weekend. I hope they can both be in Q3 again, but only time will tell. So here's something uh, interesting. Verstappen called the Aston Martin safety car a turtle this weekend. What? Yeah, he was actually defending Leclerc when he said it. He got a question about what happened to Leclerc during the during the restart, and he actually blamed it on the safety car and not his excellent driving for a change. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I actually did hear there is this question of whether the Aston Martin safety car is actually quick enough. Um, according to Bert Mylander, who drives the safety car, the AMG safety cars has almost 50 more horsepower. Yeah, Leclerc said this as well. He was about to complain about the speed of the safety car during the race itself, but then he saw how much it was skidding around the corner, <laughs> so there really wasn't more that Mylander could have done here. 
Well, we might see some changes, although you know I am a big fan of that Aston Martin safety car, so I could always take it off their hands if needed. That British racing green is a beautiful color. All right, should we transition to our F1 fantasy team update? I have yet to look at mine, and I just know it's not going to be good. Yeah, we can we can talk about it. My race week performance this week was also not on point. I am not doing great in the league that I'm a part of, and it's a bummer because I my third team is doing phenomenal well, and it's phenomenally well, and it's not the one I entered into the league. That yeah. one would have uh, would have scored a total of 181 points this week. Okay, Greener, we don't need to know what what could have been. Tell me uh, what your actual right, team fine, got. Fine, fine, fine. Fair enough. My actual team, uh, which has Verstappen. Um, who got a solid four points this weekend because of the fact that he had to retire from the race. It has Norris, who did a lot better, total of 48 points since he's my turbo driver. Gasly had a decent weekend, so he got 14 points. Sonoda, minus one points, real tough weekend for him. Schumacher with 12 points. And then Ferrari, which has been the reliable piece of my Formula One team here at a solid 44 points. So that brings me to my total of, 121 this weekend. I'm literally just too upset to speak right now. Why? <laughs> Am I still beating you? Yes. After all of those mishaps? Literally, I don't know how, but I I need to I need to switch up my team. Um I had multiple people in the red on my team and uh I, I guess I'll just give you the rundown. So I had Perez who Solid, 35 points. He got That's a P2. Good race, yeah. That's good. Is he your turbo driver? No, because I'm an idiot and <laughs> switched my turbo driver from Perez, because he didn't do as well last race, to Signs, who got negative 10 points this race because he uh, was unable to finish. It's unfortunate. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that was... Who could have predicted? Really smart decision on my point, uh, my part. Ricardo, 18 points. That's solid. Okay. Um... Alonzo, another great person to have on your team. Just kidding. Negative five. Like, how does this happen to me? And then Magnuson, who got six points. So, yeah, that that wasn't great. And Red Bull is my constructor. Thought, like, least reliable team. I need to switch them out. Um, yeah, you should switch them out, and we'll see how that works out for you. Yeah, I know. As soon as I switch them out, whoever I switch them out to is going to have to drop out from the race. So I'm all for it if it means Verstappen's picking up some more points. That's true. Um, I guess I'm just going to stick with my team. But, yeah, it was a very, very sad weekend with only 83 points. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm counting on the fact that, that Verstappen and Red Bull are going to figure out these reliability issues should move my team to the top here, and Ferrari as a constructor is just a solid bet on my part. All right, I think we should move away from this conversation. Do you want to give us a preview for the next race, the Emilia-Romagna GP? Yeah, uh, happy to do it. I'll, I'll touch on the big three since I think that's, that's most important, Mercedes, Red Bull, and, and Ferrari. The first is Mercedes. We talked about it earlier in the podcast. Uh, they're going to bring... A new wing. Um, so excited to see how that changes, you know, their ability and their car's grippiness on the track. Hopefully brings them a little closer to Red Bull and Ferrari. And it'd be great to see a, a three-constructor hunt for for the championship here. On the Red Bull side, Dr. Helmut Marco previously confirmed that his team is going to be bringing some lighter parts to Imola. 
Um, so maybe that closes the gap with Ferrari, but at the same time, Ferrari's also expected to bring some upgrades to reduce their weight. So net net, you know, we might still see a Ferrari runaway here, and then they're going to ultimately bring, uh, some resolution to their porpoising troubles, uh, and help improve their straight line speed, but that's not going to come until Barcelona. And for the track itself, this track features 19 corners, but only one DRS zone, sadly. The circuit length is 4.9 kilometers, and the race occurs over 63 laps. Interestingly, Lewis Hamilton holds the lap record here at a minute 15.484 seconds, although... I think if you remember the race last year, it was a pretty boring race where Max Verstappen ran away with it. I think there was like a 22-second gap between him and Hamilton, who was in second. So it'll be interesting to see which car dominates on the track in two weeks. And with that, I want to thank everyone for joining us and listening to the podcast this week. We will be back with another episode in two weeks after Imola. Please consider subscribing so you don't miss the episode. In the meantime, we'd love for you all to share any feedback that you have on what you want to hear so we can improve the podcast for all of you. Till next time.